Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. I think that's a little bit like where we're at in the story. We get dumped a lot by the waves and we're like, oh, I don't know if we can keep doing this. We'll catch one more wave and then it works. And you kind of think, ah, faith is restored again. You paddle out for another meeting, for another crucial conversation. I think it's a little bit like that. One of the best books that I read last year was one called Reinventing Organisations. It's about a new type of organisation that seems to be emerging in some pockets, which is classed a teal, as in a type of colour. He has a a colour hierarchy that's emerging. And there's three key characteristics of these type of organisations. They encourage self-management, they have evolutionary purpose, and they encourage people or employees or people who work there to bring their whole self to work. I'm pretty lucky in that in the work that I do on a day-to-day basis, I get to help organisations move in this kind of direction. And some of the organisations I'm working with are doing some really cool stuff that are aligned with some of these ideas. And that's why it was pretty exciting to hear about an organisation that has done this and probably taken them a little bit further than some of the organisations I've come across. And that organisation is called the Back in Motion Health Group. And I got to speak with Jason T. Smith, the CEO and founder of that organisation, and it was fascinating to hear about the journey that they've gone over the past, say, four or five years. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you enjoy listening to Jason Smith and I chat about the subtle disruption of organisational leadership. Excellent. Well, good to be chatting with you, Jason. Great to be here. First question is... Where are we having our conversation and why have you chosen this as our location? We are sitting in very sunny Melbourne uh, <laughs> on a very cloudy, overcast morning. Yeah. At the beginning of the last week of the, uh, of, of the working year as we lead into Christmas, we're sitting in the offices of the Back in Motion Health Group. Our leadership team live here, but we have a distributed geography of practices all over Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So this is really base camp. This is where we um, you know, drive the agenda and the strategy and do the creative. But our team, the people who we are here to serve, really live all over the footprint of our, our group. Yeah. And how many of them are there now? Well, there's about 25 in our leadership team and then yeah. there's about five or 600 people who live out in the practices serving our consumer, our health consumer, our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've read through your book and I'm fascinated by the subject matter of your book, actually, and the way that this organisation has set itself up. And I guess it's kind of evolved. It's gone through a very big transition. I can't remember the exact time that that happened, but a few years ago. So can we just delve straight into that? Sure. I can give you a little bit of background as to why I'm so interested in it because I guess one of my beliefs, one of my, I guess, observations or experiences of organisations is that people have to compensate for being part of them physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially. And I think organisations can be places where people are better off because they are part of them. And I want to, I want to help. I think that organisations could be that and I want to help bring that into being. And I think that from what I'm reading about you and Back in Motion... It's kind of along that path. Yeah, so this this book really is one of those books that kind of almost wrote itself, or I was compelled to write it more than I felt this innate interest to write it. And it's 200 pages of only two years in the story of the Back in Motion Health Group. Yeah. It chronicles the years between 2013 and 2015, Hmm. and only got published this year. So I I sat on it for a little while before I penned it out. Yeah. And uh, it's called Outside In, Downside Up Leadership, which is a curious title because it's it's ambiguous. The title is almost a representation of the feeling 
that we had going through what some people might look at as a very unconventional and maverick reorganisation of the way we live life in the business. Mm. So it wasn't even inside out, upside down, which is the more kind of cliche phrase. It was outside in, downside up, because it was even more radical than that. Yeah. And it felt like it. We felt like we were in a washing machine for two years, getting tossed and turned. And, um, but we did it by our own volition. We opted in. This yeah. was by our choice. We had got to a place in the story of our business where we felt like we couldn't keep doing what we were doing the way we were doing it. And it took a real leadership gesture of greatest proportion to initiate some change, not even knowing where that destination would take us. That all sounds very mystical, but uh, the book tries to take you through the pragmatic steps of what we call our one-team model. Yeah. So if I go back a little bit, for starters, I describe myself as a very accidental CEO and something of a reluctant franchisor. My, my roots, my DNA is really healthcare, physiotherapy. I'm, I'm a trained physiotherapist, never wanted to run my own business, uh, promised my wife when we got married at 20 and 21 years of age that you have no, con- please don't be concerned, babe. We are, I'm not going to bring the stress of a business into our family. Um, within a couple of years, here we were running our own small business. That's a long story, yeah. not really covered off in the book as to, as to why that happened, but it's a very personal journey of, of how we kind of ended up in this crisis of corridors and we didn't know which door to take and so we ended up just starting this small home-based, garage-based practice to try and make a few ends meet. Little did I know that that decision was going to have a destiny in it that really has set us on this trajectory. But people who are much smarter than me, Adam, who who know organisational design, who understand business principles, who have gone to school and studied economics, who have probably lived a few lives in the executive world, tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, Jace, you're onto a good thing here. This, this business concept you've created, not only is it scalable, it's probably franchisable, but you need a management team. You need structure. Mm. You can't cowboy this thing because that's what I was. I was a street fighter, you know, learning it all by first principles. Other than physiotherapy, the only other PhD I have is that in hindsight. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was making all of the traditional mistakes. And these guys said, well, you need a structure. You need a board. You need to be the CEO. You need an executive team, you need senior management, you need support staff. So I just did what they told me to do. Put all of that infrastructure and, and people modelling in place because that's, that's what convention is. That's, that's apparently how you grow and run a business. Yeah. And you know what? In large part, it, it kind of worked, at least for the first 10 years of our story. So we went from being this tiny little garage-based business to about... Uh, 40 locations, about $25 million in revenue, a few hundred staff, a couple of different states in Australia. And, you know, on any kind of scale, it, it, it was a success. We were the largest in the country. We were the fastest growing. And I had worked the hard years at the front end. And so I had got to a point at that level where I had a few direct reports Life at the top was reasonably straightforward for me. We were profitable and I was able to just enjoy making uh, executive decisions on my terms. It doesn't get much better than that, right? And so all is well except that something changed. And this is the story of the book. Something materially shifted. I went away for three months and had some self-appointed long service leave Mm. and I put two uh, of my general managers in varying degrees of authority over the organisation and unfortunately they just didn't carry the same spirit of leadership that we had carried in that structure and they used the structure for evil and not for good. I'm being a little dramatic but they used their command and control style and the hierarchical nature of a linear top-down model to drive decisions that their team members did not support. Yeah. And in the case of only a few months, this is how I describe it in the book, there was blood on the walls. Obviously not literally, but there was metaphorically um, people who were feeling like they were violated and burned and ridden roughshod over. We had lost our creative genius that had grown the business to that point. People were afraid to speak up. These two general managers were at war with each other and they were fragmenting our team. 
They were essentially deconstructing the business that we had built, the culture that we had built, and they were changing it. They were materially changing who we were. Our DNA was mutating. Mm. And and so I come back from this three-month absence. That's all it took to blow up 10 years' worth of work, three months. And there is literally a queue of about three or four people waiting at my office door on my first morning of returning to the business, wanting to tell me all of their stories of woe and pain and hardship and the fact that our culture has been destroyed and these two general managers are ruining this good thing we had going and suffocating them and disempowering them. and That's a pretty ugly way to return. Yeah. And so I'm pretty vulnerable, I think, in describing that in the book because it was, it was such a confronting experience for me. And Behind the scenes, I'm actually cooking up in my time off new vision and ambition for our organisation. I'm starting to think differently. You know, a change in geography gives you a change in perspective and I'm out of the business in this three months. So I'm dreaming about coming back into the business and doing some new and different and radical, exciting things, step-changing us, you know, in, in the achievements that we want to make, not at all expecting to be having to face a dysfunctional business. So this is almost an intersection of two opposing forces. I've got a team culture that has fallen over and at the same time I've got this vision for new and better and different which relies on an incredible team culture. So here we are almost at the beginning of the book where I just describe well I had to think differently and so I got everybody together in pretty dramatic style And the beginning of our outside-in, downside-up experience was this leadership revolution that said we are going to do things very differently. I detitled the whole organisation overnight. Everybody got stripped of all egotistical platform that said that they could tell people what to do just because so. And we started living this new way of life that said this needs to be a meritocracy like it's never been before. If your ideas are good, we'll run with them. They'll be challenged. There'll be rigour. There'll be contest around the best ideas. But I don't mind if you're the receptionist or you're the general manager. If you've got some creative insight into how we can be better, live better, grow better, then you're going to get voice. Mm. And so this was the beginning of our leadership revolution. And so I don't talk about it as a restructure, even though clearly we restructured our organisation. I don't talk about it as a cultural engagement program, even though clearly we wanted to engage people in a better culture. I actually talk about it as a leadership revolution because the one essence that drove the experience for us and today continues to be the cornerstone of it is people having an awakening that they are leaders. Mm. And, and leadership, I think, is such a misunderstood concept. So anyway, there's the short version, the paraphrased version of at least what gets us to the beginning of the book. Yeah, great. A couple of questions about that. I imagine that making uh, such an assertive decision like that mm. and taking away people's titles didn't go down well with everyone. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, people are very sympathetic when they hear this story. They're very sympathetic to the traditional C-suite guys, you know, the CFO, the, the COO. They're very, they're very sympathetic to any of the executive team and the general managers who had spent a career growing their influence through mm. structure and title and hierarchy. And No one's sympathetic to me. You know what? My platform evaporated overnight as well. I had to fall on my sword and put aside this very unique position of power that an owner founder carries and accept that I'm part of this too. So, yes, there was a number of people who would have at first sound of my voice or first thought resisted the direction this was going in. And the more hierarchical, the higher you were up the hierarchical chain, the more your visceral reaction to this was one of repelling it because it's just counterintuitive mm, yeah. for me too. This is the point. It was, it was as radical and confronting for me as it was for anyone else. The only difference for me was I ultimately was the one leading the revolution. So I had at least a day's head start on everybody else, but it was still challenging for me. But to the credit of everybody involved, including my general managers who in a large part kind of created this storm of dysfunction in my absence, they went with it, at least for a season. 
They went with it. They were open-minded. I think they were curious, if nothing else. They, they, were, they were intrigued. What's this crazy man doing? And how's it going to end up? And so whilst we detitled overnight, like that was a binary decision that had a threshold of literally a day, we had spent many, many, many months actually leading up to that point, doing lots of case study review, lots of consultation in small groups within our team. We got external people in to kind of facilitate some discussion around all of our possibilities. We had done a lot of navel gazing. Yeah. We had kind of searched each other's hearts and it got very personal. I mean, you opened this conversation with some reference to all of the dimensions of a healthy workplace being the spiritual and the soulish elements as well. We really tapped into the soul, mm. the why question. Why are we in this? Why are we doing this? Why are we wanting to work together? I mean, I could work with anyone. As an employee, you have the most power of all. You can just walk away and go find a different team, a different culture, a different job. And I say to people all the time, you can probably do what you do here, and I think this is true for just about any workplace, you can probably do what you do somewhere else for more money. It's just a matter of whether you want to. Why do you stay? You need to stay for a profound reason, and it's not going to be the money because you can get more money somewhere for doing the same thing, I'm sure of it. So we had to really gouge that out of us, which meant by the time we detitled and we don't have a flat structure, we have a spherical structure in our organisation, we might come back to that, but by the time we rounded ourselves out into this orb-like structure, people had been given lots of opportunity to kind of debrief, to share, yeah. to reveal the angst, to talk about the bits they like and the bits they don't. And they were co-creators, actually. They were co-creators. So everybody came on the journey, at least in the first instance. They didn't all finish the journey. Yeah. So, you know, we released two of our most senior guys within the first year. Yeah. And I think that's right because they were just a, the wrong fit for the new way of life. Mm. But to their credit, they went on the journey. Yeah. 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 Before we do go into a bit about how it's actually working now and the theory behind it and the the metaphors that you're using. I'm interested in also what, you said you went through that process and you did a whole lot of case studies. Who were the exemplars or who were the big influences that you drew upon to help you create what you did create? So there was a lot actually. I don't think I've ever read as much of the academic business and culture literature as I did in that 12 months. I was just a sponge for as much content as I could get. And I didn't even understand it all. But some of the influences would have been Marcus Buckingham in all of his work around strength-based leadership, requisite organisations, which I hadn't heard of, and uh, I'm not sure if you have. No, but I haven't. If I'm correct in my recollection, it's kind of 1930s, 1940s literature, and uh, I reference that in the book. So he had some really interesting insights around the structure of work. Mm. I did a lot around appreciative inquiry mm. and just that understanding of how we, how we draw out our best. Then there were just sort of more of the pop culture kind of stories of sort of the Googles and the Apples and the happiness at work studies and I looked at uh, the Morning Star Company, yeah. if you've heard of them, have, which, yeah. which have a flat structure. And there's certainly some, some of their attributes that appealed to where we were going, even if we didn't like all of it. And then there was Ricardo Semler in Brazil who runs mm. a big organisation. And, and again, it's Cinco Star, it, is it? Yeah, and, and it's, yeah. Um, it's called Maverick. His story, his book is called Maverick. And, you know, it's at least a 20-year-old story. So it's not, it's not in the recent history of organisational kind of design, but, but I think he was ahead of his time in some ways. And so I guess I just peppered myself with all of those learnings and we didn't take any one of them as a plug and play because they weren't press fit for us. Yeah. But they were all contributors because they all shaped us. I mean, everything you read and discover somehow shapes. Even if you don't like it, 
it shapes you because you know something about the organisation you don't want. <laughs> That's right. And so all of those, they're probably the key influences. And um, it was a fascinating year because for a long time I felt dizzy. I felt dizzy by all the possibilities and all of the iterations and permutations of how you can design work. Mm. Again, you know, it's this title of outside in, downside up. I just felt like I was contorted in so many different directions. All the while, I'm coming to work and I'm watching the people I love who genuinely believe in our mission floundering because they have no structure to support or design to compel them around how to work well. And so I carried that burden for about a year yeah, wow. and ended up having to create our own yeah. because it was the best of all worlds that we saw that were right for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about, maybe it's evolved even since the book, I'm not sure, but can you talk a little bit about how it actually looks today? So yeah. if someone was to come in and get a job here, first of all, what would the induction look like for them? Mm. How would you onboard them? So, so it definitely looks different today from the model I write in the book. Even though I only wrote the book this year, I wanted to write the book from first principles. I wanted people to see it in its most basic and simple format because even in that format, it can be a bit mind-bending. It's amazing how many people write to me and say, I'm halfway through your book. I have so many questions. I was in a board meeting only last night for one of the organisations I support. There was a new board member who had just joined and it was his first meeting and that was exactly his comment. He's like, oh, I'm so glad to meet you. I'm, I'm three quarters of the way through this book that you've written and I have so many questions. And yet this is the simple version. <laughs> there is a more complex version because the one you live clearly has so many more dimensions to it. Yeah. So we, we describe ourselves being on version 4.0. Yeah. And this is version 1.0. And that's because with every year that passes and with new team that come on board, they get permission to add to our story. They get invited in to be one of these co-creators. And it's really a model around the people, not a model of the people around the model. Mm -hmm. So we want the structure to be fluid enough that it serves our people. So, yeah, it, it is changing. The way we induct people, well, you know what? Interestingly, Adam... Now we have a book. So actually, people don't even get to the third interview without having been offered a copy of the book. And I know it sounds a little self-promotional, but it's really with this idea of saying, read it and come back and tell me whether that describes the sort of workplace you want to be part of. Mm. Because I don't want to hoodwink you. I don't want you, I don't want you to believe that it's all a bed of roses, that we are a perfect workplace, because we are definitely not that. But what we are is clear on how we want to work and we don't get it right all the time and we're still practising lots of these elements and if you're going to join us, we need you to improve us, not drag us backwards. So actually the first point of induction is read the book and you don't even get a job until you've come back and you've tyre-kicked and really road-tested some of the ideas in the book yeah. as the most basic elements of our expectation of you in a role. Of course, most people come back and they say all the right things, Adam. You know, they're congratulatory and they're like, wow, this is so contemporary and this is wonderful. And so then our job is to test that thinking on their suitability because I don't want the rhetoric, I, I want the courage and the brave hearts who are going to really live this out. So some of the key principles that drive our organisation are these things that we call peer accountability, free speech, distributed authorities. These are key elements of our model. So now in the interviewing and onboarding, I want to know examples of where you've lived those principles, even in other structures. Where have you held your peers accountable? Where have you carried an authority in your organisation, not because of a title or a platform, but because you were good at it and you loved it and therefore you excelled at it? Where were you able to compel people, even without title, that your ideas were worth pursuing and and investing into? Where did you speak up when it was scary and risky and unsafe, but you had to because it was right, it it was burning in you and... Mm. When didn't you? When did you violate those principles? And tell me what you've learned about that. Because that's going to be the real life experience here. They're the sorts of things we want to promote here. And so if you are 
invited into a job, then the induction really uh, at that point is, okay, so let's put skin on this. Let's really go through the charter. Let's talk about the pragmatics. Let's draw up a few different versions on the whiteboard and let's make sure you have clarity on the other side of the curtain of day-to-day life. And then actually almost every person in our team would play a part in the induction at some point. There's no use me inducting them yeah. or any one individual inducting them because that's hierarchical and that completely flies in the face of what we're trying to build, which mm. is cohesion and collaboration. So um, first day on the job ads, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to introduce you to everyone. In fact, you're probably big enough and ugly enough to introduce yourself. Yeah. So why don't you just walk the floor, find out, um, you know, where, where you're going to be for the, the next few weeks and let me help you coordinate some time with everybody on the floor because you're going to need everybody involved in your world. And it almost becomes a team-based induction. Yeah. And then you know what? There's no substitute for just getting in. Jumping in the deep end, one of our team members who only started a few months ago, first day on the job, she was in what, what we call our loop meeting. So we invited her in to the loop meeting. I write about this in the book. Our loop meeting is where we close the loop. And everybody's invited and nobody's expected at the loop meeting. By that I mean if you don't need to be there, don't be there because meetings are the biggest suck on time in any organisation. There's no bureaucratic requirement to be there. But if you have a voice or if you have something to say, if you have a contribution to make to the projects being tabled, come. If you don't, don't come. Keep working. Keep creating value somewhere else. Well, this was her first day on the job. Well, we're like, come, come and be part of the most rigorous, dynamic, dramatic meeting that's ever going to be held in the life of our week in the office and, and see who we are. What better induction than that? So some of those things you're talking about are really inspiring from an employee point of view, like even just listening to them. I work for an organisation that is pretty amazing in itself, like as a values-driven organisation and one of the main values there is transparency, so it has a transparent salary model, which I think, from what I understood in the book, you do as well. But some of those other ideas too about speaking up and challenging ideas and having rigour applied and having that as the, the norm and the expectation, I think, are inspiring, but probably not also. It doesn't reek of comfortableness mm. within the organisation. There's a degree of discomfort, I think, in that, which I, I think is positive, but... I can see that that would be quite a challenging environment too and one that may be difficult to get used to. My question is about, is it just there an expectation that people will speak up when they need to or is there some kind of, do you apply some structure or is there, does the culture enable that to happen? Yeah, that's very insightful when you say that whilst there might be some really attractive elements to this style of work, that it's not a comfortable workplace. I think that's almost the irony that's the, uh, the dichotomy. Yeah. It is a double-edged sword. There is no doubt about it. This, this model cuts both ways. It creates opportunity for people and it also creates gross discomfort for people, myself included, still five years on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is, in some twisted sort of a way, the appeal <laughs> because you only grow through adversity. You only grow through discomfort. Yeah. The cliche is step out of your comfort zone, right? That's what we always keep hearing from people who are much smarter than us. Step out of your comfort zone. Why? Because in doing so, you're exposed to new and different and so you learn and adaption happens and we become hopefully better. So it is a very uncomfortable style of work because every meeting, every interaction with someone, there's almost a tensing or like a preemptive posturing that I could be called out. And if I'm not, by golly, I should be the guy braving it to call someone else out Mm. because we're not a perfect team. And every single day holds the promise that we can get better and we only get better if we push it into that discomfort. I don't think it's an easy place to work, actually. And that sounds strange, right, because I should be the chief advocate I don't think it's an easy place to work. I think because of the standard we've set and the culture we strive for, I actually think 
it takes more intentional effort to work this way mm. than if we went back to the old way of life. But the reward is worth it. The payoff is absolutely there. So I think some people fatigue and we need to get around them and we need to support them. And then if they fatigue to a point of they don't start want to do this anymore, well, that's their signal to be released. For those who these work style attributes don't come naturally, this is your question. How do we encourage the quiet person in the room when we value free speech um, and they're not inclined to speak up? Well, we talk about it, actually. We talk about it. And maybe we talk about it publicly and then we definitely talk about it privately. Mm. So every person in the organisation has what we call a 1S which is an abbreviation for their first line of support. As opposed to having lines of report, we have lines of support because it's this spherical model that says you don't have to report to any one person. You report to the team. Actually, you report to the mission. We all share the same mission. So serve the mission. Don't serve a single man or woman. But you get a line of support, and that person's role is to encourage you in the principles of this work style. And so uh, there's an individual I'm thinking of right now. He's a wonderful guy. He has only been in our organisation about a year or a year and a half. This whole style of work is totally confronting and the least attractive part of coming here for him. His technical expertise was totally welcomed because he's so brilliant at his niche but this style of work, like, he would quite happily go back to the old style if, if it was on offer. And so every day it's a test and a discomfort for him. But I've got to tell you, in a year and a half, he has grown so much. But for him, it's those sideways conversations just before we go into a meeting. And it's like, you have an opportunity. This is a safe place. You have an opportunity to say what you really think. You should share that. You know what you tell me in private? Tell me one-on-one. I think the whole team needs to hear that. I really want to hear you speak. Um, And, you know, sometimes he takes up the offer and sometimes he doesn't. But what he'll never get is more than a few weeks of comfort because I'm coming back with a bit of a pointy elbow (laughs) and a sideways nudge to say, I know you're thinking. I know you're thinking about this. And we need to hear the benefit of your thinking. Because if you think it, it's only a matter of time and you'll act it. And therefore, if you act it, why don't you speak it first so that we can get on board with it? So it's just that coaching. It's a coaching model more than it is a telling model. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I have a question about this a little bit later about how you think this might apply to other organisations as well. But just a, a slight tangent you do recruit people into roles, but is there kind of a, an emergence thing that happens where people kind of almost create their own roles or they're, I don't know, I get that feeling from the structure that there's a little bit of dynamism in how that all works as well? Yeah, so we want fluidity. We don't want static. Because yeah. the whole idea of static is even if it's perfect in that moment, things change. Mm. So how can static ever be the answer? I mean, I married my wife 20 years ago and on the day I made a vow and commitments and I told her I loved her, if that's the last gesture I made toward her, it wouldn't be a vibrant marriage today 20 years on because it's a static kind of position in time. You have to find ways every day for the next 20 years to engage and enliven that relationship, and and it changes, it morphs over time. And and I think that is true in the workplace. So, yeah, we we don't have titles and we don't have job descriptions, but what we do have is a role profile. And the role profile is our best articulation on one or two pages of the delegated authorities and the clear accountabilities that you, the person, carry in the organisation right now, and it can be cross-functional, even if you're an accountant and your technical core contribution is in the finance function of the business, it doesn't mean you don't have 
some other contributions to make in other areas of the business. So on a 70-30 split arbitrarily, you might be doing your accounting and then the other 30% you're actually sitting in a marketing team because you've got this quirky little creative flair that you wouldn't expect an accountant to have or you're sitting in a strategy team because you realise numbers on a piece of paper are fine but unless you can interpret them and help make sense of them to those who are building the strategy it's kind of a it's, it's a very inert part of the business so you've got all of these little tentacles reaching out that a traditional finance job description might not have given you scope around but in our world your role profile has all of those chunked out with authorities which are the decision making autonomy you're empowered in and accountabilities, which means here's how we're going to measure whether you're exercising that authority well. Yeah. And three months from now, that can look very different because that project you kind of freelanced into is completed and you've got more bandwidth to do something else. And the business as usual of your core contribution is not soaking up all of you. So the question we ask each other is, what do you love and what are you good at? They're the really only two questions I'm interested. What do you love and what are you good at? And for most people, they love and are good at a core area of expertise. So their role profile still stays centred on that. But they also love and are good at some peripheral stuff. And I want their role profile to reflect that. And it changes. So we will sit in a meeting and we will launch a new project and we'll ask for expressions of interest. Who loves this sort of work and who's really good at this because we're trying to build a, you know, a crack team for this project? Yeah. And a few people's hands will go up. And then there's the negotiation around, have you really got time to do this? And uh, are you really the best person for this? And if we can't have all of you and we have to cull to some of you, let's work out who the right composition of that team is. And then the statement is, put it on your role profile. By the end of the day, I want that on your role profile. And so they'd go out and they'd add it to their dynamic, fluid role profile. And now, by definition, their contribution to the organisation has just changed. Hmm. Their job description just changed. The reason they were employed just changed because now they're carrying a new responsibility. Even if it's only 20% of their bandwidth, it's new, it's different, but the organisation's depending on you. So our expectations just changed. Your role profile is fluid. Yeah, Awesome. And you know what? People can come in, and, and I've had a couple of instances where people have come into a meeting with me and they've said, you know what, Jace? I took on this responsibility. I know that the ball is in my hands. The ball's slippery. I'm dropping it. I'm not going to meet the touchdown line. I'm wrong for this. And they have negotiated off their role profile a particular project or responsibility because that's just as important. Yeah. It's not about saying yes all the time. Sometimes it's about saying no. So we are sometimes removing things from people's roles because whilst the appetite was there, the capability is. Yeah. You know, their eyes were bigger than their stomach. So let's negotiate it off. So the journey started in 2013, first iteration implemented in 2015, and now, what, three years later, you're up to iteration four. I'm interested in maybe comparing 2013 to today, what you've noticed about say, the, the experience of people who work here? Like, what, what has changed in that? You know, what do you notice about the quality of the, quality of the experience? Mm. I think this idea of practising our work model has been a really important idea and an important concept because it's given people that sense that we can have a go, get it wrong, have another go, still get it wrong, and then get it right. And that's okay. So I think people are far more willing to give it a go. I think that's one of the, you know, four years on, there are people who will be like, it's okay if we don't get it right. Mm. But what's not okay is that we don't try. And so we are much more forgiving, I think. I think, I think in 2013, um, even though it was our first year of implementation, I think we were very hard on ourselves. I think we expected us to go from zero to 100 kilometres an hour overnight, we had espoused these wonderful principles and we had set an ideal in place and I think we underestimated the challenge of living it consistently and so we were hit and miss, hit and miss and we would beat ourselves up because we so desperately didn't want to be the old model but we were so far from being the new model that the middle ground felt like failure Mm. 
And I think we were pretty hard on ourselves. And I think in the new iteration, we are far more forgiving. We are far more comfortable with at least just having a go. And so that's why I caution people who read the book, who, who bring me in to consult to their organisations and, and want me to coach them through the execution of the model in their space. I say to them, remember, we are not perfect at this. And, and that's actually almost hardwired in the thinking of the model, that perfection is actually not the objective. It's the having a go that is the cultural piece. See, just being good at it is not the culture piece. Giving people the chance to have a go is the culture piece. That's, that's one of the cornerstones of the culture. Yeah. So I think four years on, we're better at that. I think we overcomplicated our model in some respects. The readers of the book probably wouldn't see that because we, we wrote a simple version of it. But I think, you know, the first version of our model, we had just as many rules and regulations and processes and policies around our spherical model that you could imagine. Because it was so different and unconventional, we felt like we had to articulate everything. And so we overthought it. I think we are far more simple today and therefore that gives people freedom. Freedom's an important word in this model, actually, freedom. And then I think people have now had enough experiences where they have won. They have won the, the battle. Even if the war rages on, they've won the battle. They've, they've, they've got a win in that project or they've had a crucial conversation with a peer that they were nervous and feared, but it landed well, or they've spoken up with a a sense of compulsion around where we need to go and it has changed the direction of the project. I think people have had enough wins that they're like, and they've had failures too, but they've had enough wins that they've tasted what that feels like and they're hungry. Yeah. They're hungry for that again. And it's a little bit like surfing. I'm a, I'm a hack surfer. But, you know, you can be out in the water for four hours. The surf conditions can be pretty ordinary and you feel like coming in. And so you catch, you know, you just say to yourself, I'll catch that last wave and I'll just call it a day. But that last wave happens to be the best ride of the day. And so you paddle out for one more. <laughs> yeah. And half an hour later, there's no good sets. The waves are messy. You're not getting any good rides. So you're like, ah, I'm really going in this time. And that wave you catch in happens to be a great wave again. And that's how you spend all day out there. I think that's a little bit like where we're at in the story. We get dumped a lot by the waves. And we're like, oh, I don't know if we can keep doing this. We'll catch one more wave and then it works. And you kind of think, ah, faith is restored again. You paddle out for another meeting. For another crucial (laughs) conversation. I think it's a little bit like that. So I think we're far more realistic, which is is interesting because people would probably expect me to say four years on, we're far more perfect. I think we're far more realistic. I think we're far more real and authentic. And that's an important message. In fact, in the last pages of the book, I don't know if you've got there yet, Adam, but in the last pages of the book, I actually almost give a disclaimer or a writer, to the whole 200 pages that have gone before it. And I say, don't just do what we've done. Don't, don't just implement the model, because the, the message in this book is not to do the model. The message is to catch the principles that are transferable. And even in our instance, we are evolving the model in real time. So the model is not the prize. The structure is not the best thing about it. It's the way of life that the structure enables that is the real goal. Yeah. That leads me into a question which you've touched on about some of the consulting work you do with other organisations and I presume is one of the aims of the book is to inspire other organisations to think about this at least. Um, I imagine there's a few factors that come into play if an organisation is doing this and one is a little bit hierarchical in its nature that the people who are at the top in the existing hierarchy need to really buy into it, be prepared to give up some of their power and authority. But say if, I don't know, depending on, it's a bit of an open-ended question because people listening to this, I presume, are at very different levels in their own organisations if some of those people are thinking about how do I get started here. But what would be a way 
for them to start on this journey. So in the last month, I have worked at both ends of the spectrum in terms of consulting into other organisations. One is a very small, grassroots, not-for-profit organisation with no more than five staff and maybe 40 volunteers. And they want to implement something along these lines. Right through to the other end of the spectrum where I was with a government department that had a commercial entity attached to it that delivers major infrastructure to Victoria and they would have 4,000 employees and they are very hierarchical and, as you can imagine, have very strict reporting requirements into a ministerial office. So quite extremes. Uh, And I'm really pleased, actually, because in both experiences of those extremes, there is absolutely ways for them to apply the thinking in this book. Again, I would normally get them to read the book first because what it does is it just gives them context. It gives them my story really quickly so that I can then talk about the more important element, which is their story. Mm. Um, But um, no one application of these principles will look identical, right? There's just no way. And the fact that we keep evolving is is testament to, to my belief that, of course, there's no one size that fits all. But it does rely, I mean, I mean, again, it's a leadership revolution, right? And think about it. What revolution in history ever started with the king? Yeah. It starts with the people. Yeah. It's a people-driven, people-led initiative. So even in this very hierarchical government, governed organisation that I went into a couple of weeks ago, to be honest... I had 50 of their top executives in the room. To be honest, I think it was still people-led. They had enough upswell from the ground or groundswell from their people at the coalface showing their concern and expressing their disempowerment that they were smart enough to know in the palace, in the ivory tower, that all is not well in the land. Mm. And to their credit, they embraced this idea or at least opened their mind to this idea of what could change look like? How do we better engage our people? And in that context, I reckon of the 50 people in the room, it was the CEO who was the greatest champion. Mm. So I knew, we were, I knew we were safe when I realised that we had all of this voice of the people and we had the CEO as an advocate for change the 50 in the middle, yep, they were going to be the mechanics of change. Like We had to win them over. But I had the right moving parts for a revolution. And time will tell, right, because these aren't quick overnight fixes. These are two-year journeys. In my, in my case, it was a two-year journey. In their case, it could be much longer. You know, I managed their expectation. It could take five years. It could take five years for them to experience the full benefit of a one-team life. But it's incremental benefit. So let's let's get started. But you, you really do need the you, you do need a champion. You do need an advocate. And in our case, we, we, the CEO, who better? Because he's the one who's got to give away more authority and more power for this to work. That's why it worked for us. I'm the sole director, sole shareholder of a reasonably large SME, and I walked into the organisation. And I distributed all of my unilateral authority except for about three decisions. There are only three decisions I retained as right and responsible for me to have and I let everybody else buy in on the rest of the decisions. I mean, that is a powerful demonstration of what these principles speak to. And in in these other organisations, when I go in and consult to them, that's the first step. Disempower yourself. The only way you can empower others is to share it, which means you end up with less. Mm. That's confronting. Yeah. You've got to give it away to get it back. Yeah. So I, I think I have much more leadership influence in my organisation now and much less management control. Mm. But I know which one I'd prefer. Yeah. One last question for you as we wrap up, and it's uh, I guess it's a, a personal reflection question. You talked a little bit about how people have the ability to call anyone out I'm interested in a story about where someone's called you out. Oh, I get called out a lot. Yeah. A lot. And so some classic, some classic call-outs for me. 
would be when I start to resume an authority that I've delegated. You know, if I've distributed that authority to a team, a project lead, somebody else in the organisation that sits on their role profile, the language uh, around here, because we don't believe in titles, right, because titles is not a thing, we have fun with titles. And if I've given you the authority, you are the CEO of it. So if I have 25 people in my team, I have 25 CEOs. They're just CEOs of different things. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's a team member of ours who's taken on an international trademarking project. They're the lead. They've got the authority. I sit in the working group of it. And ordinarily, in another life, I would have absolutely carried the authority on the decisions around something so critical. Mm. But this person's right to, to carry it. They're capable. So they're the CEO in this playful language, they're the CEO of that project. And so when I sit at that table and I start exercising what sound like decisions, they remind me, Jace, we totally want your opinion, but I'm the CEO of this project. Yeah. And so I get called out on that a lot. And, yeah. it, and, and, it's, and it's kind of humorous, although on the inside, a little bit of me just goes, oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I've given that away. Yeah. But, of course, it, it's the right conversation. Yesterday uh, I got called out. Somebody who, uh, who just wanted a few minutes of my time sat down and they just said, look, you know, I, I want to know where we're at on that project because, Jace, you, you're the lead on that and I, I, I want to hold you to account. I just want to make sure you're hitting the milestones because if you're not, it's going to impact my project and nobody else seems to be giving you some accountability And so I just want to sit down with you and I want to find out where you are. And I found myself having to be that guy who was walking them through the wins and the losses on this project and trying to explain why I'm not delivering on the full outcome by the deadline in budget. And I'm like, wow, this is what it feels like. But they were right to ask me because, you know, it was a dependency for their project. And I'm I'm not anyone special. I'm another colleague. And I carried that, that, that responsibility. And you know what? In all truthfulness, I walked away from that meeting and I felt like I have to do a little better on that project. Mm. So if they hadn't have called me out and we didn't have the conversation, I would have had this false sense of everything's okay when it isn't. And people would have maybe given me a bit more grace than they should have. But this person didn't. Yeah. And that's good for the organisation. Our mission is better for it because I just got to kick up the bum. Yeah. Jason, thanks for your time today and Most inspiring what you enabled here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear about other organisations that are picking up these ideas and starting to play with them as well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's very good. Thanks, cool. Adam. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. If you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.